I'm David W. Berner, and this is The Rider Shed. Hello, everybody. This is episode 24. It's our anniversary edition. One year of doing this has started as an experiment, and it has grown into... Well, what it is, and uh, thanks to you and the great guests that we have had who've contributed over the year, we appreciate that very much. What's the joke these days? Uh, what middle-aged white guy doesn't have a podcast? Well, <laughs> it's funny and partially true, but here at the Writer's Shed, we really try to link our work to the bigger world of creativity and writing and art, and hopefully we have given you some diversity here too. We always will try harder. And on this anniversary episode, something a little different. So you may know that I have begun a personal writing experiment, you might call it, offering a serialized novel online, a kind of limited series, chapters coming to you each week. The first drop, January 14th. The novel is Rainbow Man. It's on Substack. So what's this all about? Well, Rainbow Man uh, is about a grieving widower, loses his wife, and he's kind of lost his way. And he reads Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises as a part of a to-do list now that he's retired and alone, and uh, something he's always wanted to read, and he's enamored by the life in Spain. And he decides he's going to go on a trip, and this is the first overseas trip he's ever taken. His daughter is worried. He goes to Spain. He meets a woman there, a younger woman, who has a kind of a secretive past, and they connect. They become fast friends, um, and both of them go on a journey to Rainbow Man, which is the Andalo Man in southern Spain. It's a true carving, ancient carving. And uh, this changes them both forever, sends them on paths that they never expected, and uh, reinvents their lives. And uh, it's an interesting uh, story that came about from uh, partially my trip to Spain. So I'm hoping you will enjoy it. That's what it's about. The experiment is really the platform here. It's kind of an old idea. Serialized fiction is not new. Dickens, Hemingway did it. I do not wish to turn my back on bookstores. This is really not what this is all about. This is a a new process and a new platform, and I think it deserves some attention, some experiment. Uh, Other writers are doing it, some big names out there too, so why not give it a shot and see what happens? And so in this edition, I'm offering you the first two chapters of Rainbow Man in audio. You can check out the Substack platform for the book at rainbowman.substack.com. And if you like the idea, if you read it and you like what you're reading, you can decide to take on the whole book if you'd like. It's right there for you. So, Rainbow Man, Chapter 1. Robert wrecked the rental car. It skipped the curb and clipped a fire hydrant, and the front bumper on the passenger side was bent several inches in toward the wheel well. A black rubber piece had torn away from the fiberglass. Fiberglass and rubber don't do well against cast iron. Robert recalled the day when a car's bumper was a real bumper, made of steel. There would have been little harm if car makers hadn't been so cheap over the years, he thought. The damage wasn't terrible. The car was drivable, but there was anyway. Damage to a car that wasn't his, a Chevy Impala that had been in his possession for less than a week. He now had to report what had happened, but couldn't find the phone number for the rental car company. He believed the agent had written it on the outside of the contract envelope, and Robert thought he had tucked the paperwork under the visor. 
but in the minutes after the crash, when he searched for it, it wasn't there. He pulled the car off to the sidewalk and away from the hydrant, found the closest street parking, and sat inside searching. He looked in the glove compartment, on the floor, and in the side pocket of the car's door. Nothing. Robert reached in the pocket of his windbreaker for his cell phone to call his daughter to alert her that he would be late, and there it was. The contract folded neatly in half. He made the phone call to the rental company. An agent was expected in an hour, and Robert would wait in the bar across the street. Robert liked a beer now and then, but he wasn't much of a drinker. A few beers at the ball game was about it. He hadn't been inside Bingham Tavern since it changed hands. It was Calb's for years. The new owners had spruced it up, brought in some craft beer. They were serving wings now. The bar stools were new, no more cracked vinyl. A beer sounded good, but with the rental car rep on the way, Robert had second thoughts. Still, he took a seat at the long bar. It's after the noon hour, and it's almost five o'clock, the bartender said, smiling. It was a young man, about 25 or so, wearing a black pirate's cap, a large compass tattoo on his forearm. It's not about that, really, Robert said. I had a little fender bender, so I'm waiting for the service. Ah, man, are you okay? It's minor. The bartender slapped a cardboard coaster on the bar, one with the tavern's name on it. You deserve a beer, I would say, he said. Car rental guy might smell it on me, Robert said. I'll vouch for you. The beer labels on the tap handles touted brews Robert had never heard of before. Fat tire, red duck, something called vanilla porter. He asked for a rock, something familiar. They had it in bottles. Rolling Rock used to be brewed in Latrobe, Robert said, Arnie's hometown. A Pennsylvania hero, Arnold Palmer, had lived his whole life in the small town where he grew up. He died there, too. The bartender had heard Arnie's story many times, mostly from out-of-towners who wandered in after stepping out to the viewing decks on Mount Washington to see the glistening city lights below. He would pick out the tourists, always talking western Pennsylvania trivia, as if no one in the city had ever heard any of it before. How long are you in town for, the bartender said. I live here, on Piermont. I was on my way to Green Tree. My daughter lives there. Shoot, Robert said, remembering. I still need to call her. Robert took a sip from the green bottle. He had been on his way to give Debbie the house keys so she could retrieve the mail and the newspapers while he was away. He was one of the last on the street to have the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette delivered each day. It would be conspicuous if the papers were left to accumulate on the front walkway. It was Debbie's idea to come and get them, and it was Debbie who had questioned whether it was the best thing for her father to go overseas alone. "'Hey, honey,' Robert said into the phone. He explained the mishap, insisted he was fine." and told his daughter he wasn't sure when he'd be there. It might take some time. Debbie lived alone in the sprawling apartment complex along the Parkway West. She worked for Dick's Sporting Goods in the corporate offices in Curiopolis. Robert didn't know exactly what it was she did, something to do with public relations or marketing or something like that, he believed. When she got the job after graduating from Pitt, Robert asked her if she knew the most famous person to come from Curiopolis. Michael Keaton, she said, rolling her eyes. As soon as I get it straightened out, I'll call you. It was a dumb thing. Just hit the curb. And you're sure you're okay? Fine. Not a big deal. Don't stand outside and wait. It's kind of chilly today. Can you go inside somewhere? I'm inside in Bingham. The bar. The place near me. Sorry to inconvenience you. It's okay, Dad. Please take your time. I'll wait for you and be careful. You sure you don't want me to come there? I can come. No, no, don't worry, honey. 
The images from the three television sets above the bar flickered against the row of glasses on the back shelf. Each screen had been turned to the same channel and the sound turned low. Pirates game last night, big crowd, bartender said. Still no player like Clemente, Robert said. Never saw him, wasn't even born. Best ever. I hear that a lot. At the game a few days ago, used to go a lot more than I do now. It's been a long time. Bucks won, but I lost. How's that? I usually take the incline and the bus, you know. This time, though, I thought I'd drive, but the guy in the parking lot hit me. Back of the car, big hurry, he wasn't looking. That's why I have that rental. My car's in the shop. You've had some car issues, my friend. You could say that. Your insurance taking care of it, right? It's going to be several days to repair, and I'm heading across the pond. They can keep it for a while. Robert lifted the beer bottle to his lips, and before tasting, he said, Spain. I'm going to Spain. It had been years since Robert had taken a trip of any kind. The summer before Debbie went to high school, the family had traveled to Nags Head for a week, and there was the 10th anniversary trip to Florida, but there had been nothing since, nothing of significance. The only other trips were the seasonal drives with Emma near Seven Springs in the fall to see the leaves. A few months after Emma was gone, Debbie tried to get him to go to Cook Forest for a weekend in the woods, maybe some fishing, a trip together where she could watch over him. It would do him good, she said. Good for her, too. But Robert wasn't interested. He used to like fishing. He once liked going down to the river on early Saturday mornings. Debbie offered a trip to New York once. They could see Hamilton, she said. It didn't happen. It was a year before Robert returned to the ballpark. Leaving the house for anything had been difficult for some time. It was a good house, a good place to hide. He and Emma had lived in the little three-bedroom for 30 years. They bought it a few years after the wedding when Robert had landed the manager job at Giant Eagle. They raised their daughter there. He mowed the small lawn, planted a Japanese maple near the front door stoop, and together they walked as a family to St. Mary's on Grandview on summer Sundays. After Emma, the house, so empty and quiet, had become Robert's cocoon. Years later, on a morning in February, he awakened to a bitter wind and big snowfall. Robert stayed in bed, drinking coffee and reading as the snow piled up. As a New Year's resolution, he had made a list of books he'd never read, but thought he should now that he had the time. It was one of several lists Robert had compiled to jumpstart the new year, jumpstart him. There was one on movies and a list of card games he'd never learned to play. Bridge had always seemed so complicated. There was the flower list, too, plants he had always wanted to try to grow, roses and orchids. Robert had begun to tackle the book list, books that had seemed out of reach, he jumped into War and Peace and gave up. Ulysses and gave up. On that snowy morning, it was the sun also rises. And for whatever reason, that clicked. He read all day and finished it that night. The next day, he could think only of Spain. The months alone. The isolation falling away after reading Hemingway's romantic words. The wine, the fishing, the glorious fiestas. A different world, a new world. Robert couldn't explain it. Why that book? Why Spain? Most of the book takes place in Paris, so why not Paris? For whatever reason, the chapters on Spain were what hooked him. Robert booked a two-week trip, Spain in the summer, Spain by himself. It all happened just like that. Now there's a trip that sounds amazing, the bartender said. You must be retired. A few years now, Robert said. Taking your wife? Robert had wondered on the day he booked the flight, would Emma have wanted this trip the way I do? She too had never been overseas. Long ago, when they were young and dating, 
They took weekend drives to Lake Erie and spent their days on the beach at Presque Isle. They ate fried fish sandwiches, she drank beer, and she sipped white chilled wine at a little restaurant near the beach with a white fence around it and the outside tables near a grove of trees. In Spain, Robert thought, Emma could have sat by the sea drinking white sangria. No, only me, Robert answered. He took another swig of rock, leaving a bit in the bottle, wiped his lips with a bar napkin, and looked toward the door as if he had anticipated someone walking through it. He placed a $5 bill on the table. That'll do it, right? Little tip there, too. You are good, my friend. I better wait for the car, Robert said. The bartender removed the empty bottle and wiped a white cloth across the bar. Always wondered about what a bullfight was really like, he said. It wasn't long before the Avis agent arrived. He inspected the car, asked Robert some questions, and had him fill out some paperwork. Robert had agreed to the extra rental insurance when he was handed the keys. It seemed a good idea to do, and it turned out it had been. Since the crash was minor, the agent told him to keep the car through the contract's end. Robert was scheduled to return it in two days. Pulling away to his daughter's place, the bells of St. Mary rang out, signaling the end of Saturday evening mass. And when he stopped at the corner, Robert saw the bartender standing outside the entrance to Bingham, his back to the wall, cigarette smoke rising above his head. I want to hear some stories about matadors, the bartender shouted. Robert wasn't sure about a bullfight, not sure he could stomach it. Still, coming home with a story or two to tell the bartender would be nice, a story or two to tell his daughter, too. Maybe not tales of bulls and red capes and swords, but memorable stories nonetheless. Robert hoped to take photos so he could remember those stories, and Debbie had showed him how to work the camera on his phone. He had been practicing taking pictures of the city from Grandview Avenue. Robert drove down the hill toward the boulevard and onto the parkway toward his daughter's apartment. He reminded himself to pack a second bottle of antacids for his trip, another suggestion from Debbie. She worried about his touchy stomach. Robert couldn't recall if he'd put his new passport, the only one he'd ever had, in the side pocket of a suitcase at home, or if it was still on the kitchen table where he placed the boarding pass for the flight and the hotel reservation confirmation he had printed out from the computer. When he returned home, he'd be sure to check for the passport, and he would check again in the morning, and on his way to the airport, double and triple check and quadruple check. Of all the things to forget, that would be the worst. His daughter had said he'd been a little forgetful lately. Maybe she was right. Chapter 2 It was St. Augustine, the anniversary trip. That was the last time Robert had been on a plane. This flight would not only be the first time since then, but it would be the longest plane ride of his life, and much of it, nearly all of it, over water. How do they keep this thing in the air? The flight attendant was a pretty woman with an olive complexion, deep brown hair pulled back in a tight ponytail, and dressed in a military-style uniform, dark blue, shoulder straps, and fake brass buttons. Sir, you are in an emergency exit row, and in the event that anything goes wrong, it is likely we will need your assistance. Are you okay with this, sir? Robert thought how odd it was that the attendant was smiling when she explained potential disaster. In the event of an emergency, it is possible that a flight attendant may not be able to assist in opening these exit doors. We may be helping other passengers, so it's important that you know how to properly operate them. The attendant noted the instructions posted on the door and asked that Robert read them. It was then that a large man, after stuffing a soft leather bag into the overhead, fell into the aisle seat in Robert's two-seat row. I know how this works, the man said to the attendant. 
He turned toward Robert. I always request these seats, more leg room. Am I right? The attendant completed her explanation and asked both Robert and his seatmate to pay close attention to the safety guidelines when it came time for her to announce them. The man gave the attendant a thumbs up. George, the man said, offering his hand to Robert. Another business trip for me. Hate these things, especially the long ones. Been doing it for a long time, getting old, but you gotta do what you gotta do, right? Company used to give me first class, not anymore. All the cutbacks. The man buckled a seatbelt. Robert did the same. And you, what's your story? The man asked. My story, Robert paused, took a breath and thought for a moment. Spain, I guess that's my story. Good thing, the man laughed. This plane's going straight to Madrid. The first leg was to New York, but Robert knew what he meant. It's something I wanted to do, Robert said. Those words sounded strange to Robert, a trip he wanted to do. It's not true. Spain was more of an impulse, a yearning sparked by a good book. I made this list of things, you see, things to do in my older years, things I never got to. I read some Hemingway, and here I am. Are you running with the bulls? The man asked, knowing it couldn't be true. Robert laughed. I would certainly be killed. I think that might be a little too much excitement for me. Going to the south, Granada. I hear it's wonderful. Spain is a good place, the man said, tucking a navy blue pillow behind his head and leaning against the seat. Good food, wine. You know about tapas? Little bites? A lot of it is free. Many times they'll keep feeding you as long as you keep drinking. Well, I like a little wine, but maybe not that much. Spain is going to change your mind about that. It does that, Spain. Changes minds. Out the window, Robert saw the ground crew moving the last of the luggage from a motor car to a conveyor belt and into the plane's belly. He looked for his suitcase but didn't see it, and that worried him a little. Robert closed his eyes and leaned his head on the window. He tried to remember a prayer his mother used to recite when he would go to bed, a prayer to his guardian angel, his little body under the covers and his mother sitting beside him with her hands clasped. It was impossible to sleep on the flight, despite the crew trying its best to help, dimming the lights, pulling all the window shades down. Robert ate the baked chicken and russet potatoes and vanilla pudding, balancing it all as best he could on the tray table. He thought maybe an after-dinner drink of whiskey and ginger ale would help. He hadn't had a real cocktail in years, but this was vacation, and it might knock him out. It didn't. Ten dollars was a lot of money, he thought, for an ineffective sleeping pill. So he watched a movie. The Surprise, Norwegian or Swedish maybe, with subtitles. It was a comedy about two people who sign a contract to end their lives and then fall in love and change their minds. It was oddly dark and oddly amusing. He read a bit too, one of Rick Steves' guidebooks about the south of Spain. A bit of the sun also rises, returning to the pages he had dog-eared. And For Whom the Bell Tolls. He had carried all three on board, all old paperbacks, he read the section in the guide on the food and wines of Granada and Ronda, the chapters on the travels to Pamplona in the sun, and the last pages of Bell. He had loved the book's ending, another novel on his list that he had finally conquered, beautifully written despite the machismo that runs through all the sentences. And of course, the hero carried his name, Robert. But what Robert wasn't prepared for was how much that ending, one of sacrifice, loss, love, and death, would distress him in the second reading flying high above the Atlantic. Robert ordered another whiskey despite his better judgment and asked the flight attendant when they might be landing. Our arrival time in Madrid is about three hours. Can I get you anything else? Robert shook his head, placed a paper napkin on the tray and lifted the clear plastic cup to his mouth. Should have ordered some red wine, his seatmate said, 
The man shifted in his seat and opened an eye. He could see the tea-like color of the liquid in Robert's glass. You're going to Spain, remember? The man added. I'm sure I'll have my fill. I might become a lush. Robert lifted his glass in a mock toast. You'll be sending a case or two of red wine home before you leave. I guarantee it. You better try to get some shut-eye, my friend. The seatmate adjusted his neck rest and closed his eyes. The man's suggestion sounded like something Debbie would have said. Since her mother's death, she had been tirelessly looking after her father. Did you take your antacids? Did you make the dentist appointment? Are you eating, Dad? You have to eat. She meant well. Still, many times, this made Robert feel like a child. Had him questioning his abilities and his mental state, something he didn't want to think about. Was he losing it? Was he older? Yes, but he wasn't helpless. When he told her about the trip, Debbie was full of concerns. All by yourself? Are you sure? Why are you doing this? You'll get lost, Dad. You're an old man. You know how you are with directions. Maybe you should go with a senior group, one of those guided bus tours with people your age. Wouldn't that be a better idea? Wouldn't that make more sense? In time, she stopped asking, although he knew Debbie's worrying wouldn't end. With the light still dimmed and only whispered voices to hear, Robert swallowed what remained of his drink and made a silent salute to his daughter. It was the announcement to return to your seats and buckle seatbelts that had awakened Robert. The second whiskey had helped, but now the plane was close to landing, below 10,000 feet and beginning its descent to Madrid. Ladies and gentlemen, we will be landing shortly, the pilot said over the speakers. The local time is 9.35. The weather is good. It's a nice morning in Madrid, clear skies and 18 degrees. We appreciate you flying with us. Welcome to Spain. Robert's seatmate drank from his coffee. You missed breakfast, he said. Wasn't much, a muffin in a plastic wrapper, and this, he raised his coffee cup. Not sure I'm ready to eat, but coffee maybe, Robert said, adjusting his seat to the upright position. They won't get you any now. I'll grab some at the airport. You like espresso? I've had it, I think, strong, right? Espresso is kind of a thing here. Heavy. I love it, but it's an acquired taste. When in Spain, you should get a hat too. One of those straw ones? Robert had never been much of a hat guy, except his old Bucks baseball cap. A requirement in Spain? Robert asked. The seatmate lifted his eyes to Robert's hairline. People wear hats. You could use one, not to be forward, but there's some skin up there. Robert still had some hair, but it had thinned a good deal in the last few years. He had given up trying to cover the bald spot on his crown and was keeping his hair trimmed more closely. He had gone to the same barber, Stanley on Southern Avenue, for decades sat in the same chair, usually on a Saturday. But when Stanley's hand started to shake, Robert switched to the shop on Grandview. He had been troubled by the change. Stanley had been a friend. Robert didn't know the name of a single barber in the new place. They were always coming and going. Hats are everywhere, the seatmate continued. Airport shops will have them to buy. You can get a decent one for a few euros. You look good in one. Robert wasn't sure about that. Spain can get hot, the man said. Sun shines all the time. A hat and an espresso. There you go. Seatmate lifted the coffee cup and a toast to España. Robert had purchased a little translation book at the airport before the flight. He had wanted to study it during the journey, but had forgotten. There would be two hours at the Madrid airport before his bus was scheduled to leave, and then five hours to Granada. He could teach himself a few things along the way, at least some of the essentials. Where's the bathroom? Something baño, right? Robert studied two years of Spanish in high school, but that was a lifetime ago. And as it always goes, you lose it if you don't use it. 
He had heard that many Spaniards spoke English, but he didn't want to be the ugly American. So he bought the book, and he would study and listen to the conversations of the passengers on the long bus ride, and he would whisper new words to himself several times over until they felt comfortable. And when he would arrive in Granada, he would hail a taxi like a Spaniard, wearing the new straw hat he bought for 20 euros at one of those little shops in the airport terminal. Again, Rainbow Man is available now in serialized form on Substack, rainbowman.substack.com. Join me. I, I think you'll like the story. This has been episode 24 of The Writer's Shed. I'm David W. Werner. Our music is from IRA Music Production and Interviews Produced in the Shed. You can find out more about Writer's Shed Press at writershedpress.com and at The Writer's Shed on Medium. You can also sign up for our newsletter there and find out more about us at Writer's Shed Press on Twitter. The Writer's Shed is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.